0: China has a quarter of the world's Alzheimer's patients. With the country's grey population growing rapidly, the number of patients will likely increase fourfold by 2050. Meet the patients, their families and caregivers, and discover the anxiety, struggle and misconceptions behind one of the biggest problems of an aging society in our documentary, Aging in China, Living with Alzheimer's, on CGTN radio. For podcast listeners, search The Top Story and find the program on all popular podcast apps on September the 21st, the 30th World Alzheimer's Day.
1: Zoom in on global affairs with insightful debates and exclusive interviews. This is World Insight.
0: Hello and welcome to World Insight with Mi Wei. The ancient Silk Road spanning across the East and West is an inspiring part of human history. At the ongoing 45th session of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee, more cultural relics from countries, including those along the ancient Silk Road, and part of the history, have been listed as world heritage sites. In addition to the already existing long list of wonders related to the ancient Silk Road, such as the Dunhuang Grottos, the ancient Silk Road has many admirers. One of them is Tim Winter, a senior research fellow at the Asia Research Institute of National University of Singapore. Winter is the author of the latest book, Geocultural Power, China's Quest to Revive the Silk Road for the 21st Century. One could tell he's not only fascinated by the ancient Silk Road, but also how it can inspire all of us today for a shared Future. My conversation with Tim started from his trips to Xi'an and Dunhuang to significant towns along the ancient Silk Road. Professor Winter, when you are saying that there are certain aspects of the ancient Silk Road not known to the West, what exactly do you mean and why?
1: So- So the Silk Road is a term that's invented in the late 19th century, and it gains popularity through the course of the 20th century. It enters Western popular culture in the 1930s, uh, and then Japan takes it up after World War II, and it really uh, achieves global fame at the end of the Cold War. So so from the 1990s onwards, the West really takes a strong interest in the Silk Road because it's a story of histories of perhaps globalization and certainly East-West connections. But that story, that history is framed by the material culture, the artifacts that, that sitting in museums, whether it's in London, Paris, Berlin, uh, Seoul or North America, in the United States, in museums and universities. And that is really about Central Asia, because those were the types of artifacts and items and manuscripts that were collected from places like Magal. Uh, In the late 19th century and early 20th century, the decades of research up until the First World War, the end of the Qing dynasty. And so that's a particular geography and region around which the West understands the Silk Road. But what we're learning now is that if we think about uh, the histories of connection across regions, it's a much, much broader geography. It's a much longer time frame. And so as new places are uh, identified for archeological research, new museums are built, new objects, whether it's manuscripts, ceramics, things like food as well, intangible forms of history and heritage, we can tell Mm. that of a a connected Asia or connected Eurasia in much, much more expansive ways than has happened over the course of the 20th century.
0: So one really wonder whether our ancestors are smarter, in fact, than all of us. For example, they create something as impressive as the ancient Road.
1: The story of the last 150 years or so has obviously been around the formation of nation states. And history and heritage and uh, and identities become uh, bound up and and linked to the idea of the nation. So so what it means to be um, British history or Canadian history or Chinese history, but what that does is close down those complex relationships and those movements of objects people ideas across those political boundaries that we have today so what we're beginning to understand is that and of course researchers have long known this and scholars have not long known this but it's but it's how the how this gets communicated to the public uh, across china and across asia as well um, and i think that's a very productive new way to think about history because of the rise of popular nationalism and the tensions that are happening around that in different mm. parts of the world today, then these trans boundaries, these trans-regional and trans-oceanic histories are important. The ocean, for example, has been long overlooked in its significant significance in, in world history. And, and I think the Maritime Silk Road as an idea is beginning to give more visibility to that those types of historical connections between continents, between regions, in a way that we, we haven't understood so well right. in the 20th century.
0: You know, globalization as a buzzword has been with us for two to three decades. Now, though, Professor Winter, we see some people try to describe what we are going through right now as so-called deglobalization. Others try to suggest that we are in a new process or new path of globalization, such as re-globalization, no matter what the technology is. Um, so how do you see the ancient Silk Road and the phenomenon related to the globalization of a different version of ancient times?
1: Yes, obviously the numbers and the scale of globalization is, is, is profoundly different to, to today compared to centuries or even millennia ago. And certain regions play a very different role. So in it, when we look back over a longer time frame. Really, a lot of the history of, of and, and that's where the Silk Road comes in, of the connections of trade, et cetera, that connected Europe and Asia were more developed and, and, and than other continents. So that, so I think what the Silk Road is interested in doing is recentering Eurasia as a, as an idea within world history and regions such as the Indian Ocean and Central Asia in, in the narratives of world history in the way they haven't been given the visibility they deserve in, in over the course of the 20th century. Where we've well understood the significance of the Atlantic world and uh, and, 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 other, and other regions of the world.
0: Many scholars believe, Professor Winter, you also know this, that China is not just a nation state. China is a civilization. In other words, China's culture history spans more than hundreds of years uh, to a few thousands. And therefore, what does that mean? Uh, China's impact on the ancient Silk Road, and how is the other way around?
1: How we think about that civilizational past and how it relates to the geographies of a nation today, and as in the the boundaries of China today, is a a complex and contested space. But it's also the ways in which China reimagines its particular dynasties, where those regions were, and its relations with other regions is also is also underway now There's, new scholarship is redefining those those types of relations between past and present in a way that's about building futures okay. but where the silk road is particularly important i think is is that it's not helps us rethink civilization not as geographical regions on maps but as a as a story and as a history of connectivity and exchange between between regions between cultures between people so then we understand it through flows of of trade etc and flows of knowledge and and flows of commodities and ideas and religions of course um religions and languages all of these are extremely important so then we, when we really understand that we don't have these ideas of civilizations as blocks and regions of world politics today, which is the thesis of the clash of civilizations and, and the ideas of, his, of, a, of an Islamic world, a Chinese world, and a Christian world or European world. This is a way to rethink how we think about the relationship between history and international affairs, international politics, and globalization today. The commonalities that we can find through certain forms of historical connection and obviously, um, there are, uh, all the different languages that the world speaks suggests of differences, but but it's finding those common cultural connections, those ways in which those intercultural dialogue can be built, is important. And mm. and often that's uh, something that we've forgotten and we lose once we think about history, culture, and religion in relation to national differences. So I think that's a that's a productive way. Right. And it, I would say it's organisations like UNESCO and others that are are trying to promote those ideas all the time.
0: History is continuous, one could probably, Professor Winter, correct me if I'm wrong, notice that um, when visiting Dunhuang, I remember visiting Dunhuang and looking at those grottos on the walls, you could see layers after layers being done through different generations. You know, it's almost like a cut through of history once you look at those different layers of grottos coming from different times in history. So how do you understand You know, the ancient Silk Road can be this crystallization of how our civilizational exchanges happen.
1: It's about finding those connections, which which also then brings us back to the present about the types of research and the types of work that are required... To, to not just see places like Dunhuang in isolation, but to see them as part of this transnational historical connection. And you can take many objects. You can take um astrolobes that are uh, used for maritime navigation. We can look at the ways in which those moved around the Indian Ocean, um, from from uh from East Africa down to Southeast Asia, et cetera, and, and understand those historical connections um, that often don't get picked up through the ways in which we frame national museums and national histories uh so it's so belt and road i think is produced this ways in which uh, it's created new forms of heritage diplomacy that connect institutions that collect c- connect universities connect museums to form these to these new types of research and scholarship that then become uh, produced for public mm-hmm. audiences sorry, museums festivals and uh, media projects and obviously um uh, television also through new, through new digital platforms and social media as well, so that these ideas reached younger audiences. Um,
0: you talk about the scale of history, but if you look at the time, there's also a timeline that is uh, absolutely impressive. Two thousand years ago, Zhang Qian went to visit uh, Xi yu what is called the then, namely also certain areas later known as the ancient Silk Road. 1300 years ago, the uh, Chinese monk Xuanzang uh, went to ancient India, tried to brought back some of the um, Buddhist scriptures. So these are all examples of how things happened then, how uh, civilization, cultural exchanges were done then. So how much do you see? You know that can be inspiring to all of us today.
1: It's a complicated question, as you say. The the the, the ways in which international uh, affairs yeah. and international politics t- today is going is 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 certainly around potential forms and new forms of division, uh, regional blocs, etc. And and I think it's important for smaller countries where they're they're struggling to work out um, where to position themselves in the future. So so whether it's for Central Asia or for countries in East Africa. These historical connections is about them understanding their place in the past, but also the present and, and for themselves going forward. So the question you you pose though, around how do we understand these is this takes work in terms of it takes uh, investment from organizations. Um, so, so it's also about producing the research that, that enables this type of knowledge to come to the fore, but it's about communicating those to public audiences. So for example, a lot of the work I've done in the past is understanding the relationship between culture and, and cultural conservation and development in places like Cambodia, Southeast Asia, and others. And one of the things that the West uh, organizations such as the World Bank and others have tried to understand is how you how you bring those two together, culture and development, in a way that we've seen a dramatic rise of of in, international tourism, for example. And that's how these. These histories are communicated to public audiences because there's a big difference between what you learn in school and what you learn as an adult, and and your dedication to learning these complex histories. So museums and heritage sites, uh, world heritage sites, play a really important role in communicating these these connections to 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 international audiences. And so one of the things I I've seen with tracking Belt and Road is, for example, the organizations such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank haven't put so much emphasis on culture and development. And I think there's opportunity to do that in the future, to to bring together these types of issues that you're talking about and see those relationships that culture has become a fundamentally important part of development today. And and that requires uh, investment, because tourism is also about building infrastructures for these smaller countries, Mm -hmm. such as Airports, hotel zones, World Heritage planning, etc. All of these are big challenges. We had we had a World okay. Heritage nation, successful Silk Road listing yesterday, just yesterday. And these are this is thirty one sites across Central Asia, and these are going to have important challenges ahead of them. So I think there's there's uh, projects uh, to be done to to make these connections between culture, history, and development today that um that, com- that can communicate these histories to, to wider public audiences both for those countries themselves, but also for international visitors.
0: When we are researching about cultures and civilizations, uh, Professor Winter, there is increasing awareness of the so-called linguistic power. After all, the history of the world that we are seeing today mainly have been written uh, by scholars coming from the West after several industrial revolutions. Uh, which the developed economies, the West, has been uh, the dominating voices. So when we are doing research about cultures today and civilization, how should we try to avoid the fall into the same stereotypes and also linguistic uh, traps uh, to make sure that there will be diversity in terms of how history, in fact, came together?
1: No, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, w- I would think consensus is probably a, a too much. It's a bit of a stretch to say there was consensus. So, so the Silk Road is is a modern term for understanding this complex, broader history of connectivity, and so that there is a risk of reinterpreting these these trade networks, these flows of religion, language that spread across in multiple directions that connects China to the world. That connect uh other regions to each other and and, and uh, uh and and across maritime and, and and overland regions but to say that's a consensus i think i think uh the, these were often in many cases isolated populations there are a few traders that moved between market towns and so the knowledge around uh trade and goods etc spread over time and in, in and in different volumes of different moments and different quantities at, at, at different points mm-hmm. in history um as as kind of trade waxed and waned so what we're seeing today in the 21st century is a kind of another transition perhaps that tells us about those different flows and those different regional connections that and, and as they go up and down in history but the, but but it will be An oversimplification to create this grand story of connectivity that spans two to 3,000 years in a way that suggests there was an overarching consensus. So obviously, we've seen in the last year or so the new initiatives of the Global Civilization Initiative and the Global Development Initiative. And I think those are important uh, platforms for cooperation going forward. The challenge is bringing those together in a productive way. So the, so the sustainable and respectful conservation for the historical past that is also linked to development initiatives uh, going forward. And that's a relationship that the West and Western organisations have struggled to bring together in the past four to five decades. And I think it's China has an opportunity to not make those same mistakes and learn from the productive projects that have, ha- have happened in recent times. And that also obviously speaks to achieving the UN sustainable development goals and the complex relationships that those demand that we bring together. So I think those two initiatives that China's mm. pushing forward, moving them into concrete plans in the future, um, is an important relationship to mm. build between those different elements of, of the GCI and the, and, the, and, the, and the global development initiative in the future.
0: Now, about the ancient Silk Road and the Belgium Road initiative, one has sounded note of caution. Uh, For example, how to make sure that there is sufficient analogies uh, for all of us to understand what's going on today reflecting of history, but at the same time to make sure that these analogies are accurate. For example, the Belt and Road Initiative, according to some uh, scholars, is not the modern version of the uh, ancient Silk Road, but they are two very different things, even though can be mutually inspiring and referencing. Meanwhile, the Belt and Road Initiative, as we see 10 years earlier, it was mainly about infrastructure, uh, connectivity in that sense. But now it is some describe it as a more updated version Uh, For example, about the green BRI, about digital BRI, and about cultural exchanges, people-to-people ties along the Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, how do you see these two very different things? One is the ancient Silk Road, one is a modern version of collaboration Belt and Road Initiative.
1: As you very uh, neatly summarized there, that the initial years were thought of initial years of the BRI were described and presented as primarily around physical infrastructures, um, the transboundary, the transcontinental forms of infrastructure and and th- that are still needed across different regions. And we're seeing that as other countries respond as well. So, so the new corridors are talked about going through the Middle East and Turkey's ambitions to build a transboundary corridor. But I think what you're also referring to which i think is a, is an is an is an accurate way of where this will be going forward is is the cultural connectivities the digital connectivities that speak to also the challenges of of humanity going forward so so i think what will be an important development and and i think china's definitely making moves as well as india and others is to think about civilization in perhaps what academics call post human terms in terms of now, we need to understand as as our connections to the planet much better. So, an eco civilization, an, invi- an ecological civilization, and I know the Green Silk Road is an attempt to build those. But of course, what we've got to do is go be far beyond just speeches and uh, lots of um, r- the rhetoric of these of these types of initiatives, and understand how these become platforms for cooperation and meaningful projects that have a material influence on the ground or in the ocean, um, because obviously oceanic sustainability is one of the key challenges we are facing today. And so, so yes, but that requires international cooperation and collaboration. So I think BRI is one of those important platforms of collaboration and cooperation across different sectors that help us think about The environment, ecological, civilizational uh, futures, and then obviously bringing digital tools to that, which is profoundly important as well, because Mm -hmm. the digital enables us to both communicate these these both challenges and the responses to those challenges, but also Mm -hmm. brings a new scale of research, a new scale of providing solutions Mm -hmm. for these, which which uh, certainly universities are now investing in. Um, and and other organizations. So I think that's an exciting space where we can bring humanities together with scientists um, to to think about these these, uh, challenges that we are facing today.
0: When we are researching about culture and civilizations, how to make sure that we are trying to build bridges, trying to bring the common grounds together rather than divide people
1: obviously people are looking for um, peace and stability uh, whether that's political or, or human security uh, today uh, that enable people to get on with their family lives and 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 living and just living their cities or regions that they um, have been you know uh, accustomed to over through all their lives and so so a future of violence and, and major conflict is certainly not where we want to go in the future and so one of the things I've been concerned about is the ways in which the pandemic locked countries closed the closing of borders and locked populations up into closed national boundaries and geographies and regions and where that's closing down intercultural dialogue and the understanding of people and and different cultures across borders so whilst tourism creates a, a very significant carbon footprint we also need to encourage ways to have People crossing borders again and have these mutual conversations that, that, that also show that there are common cultural concerns and values and ideas that that get closed down and be, be, they're be becoming marginalized and becoming silenced by this 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 political discourse of of tension and geopolitics. So so yeah, I'm 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 a kind of believer in internationalism and the ways in which we need to kind of maintain. Cultural internationalism at a at a moment where the pandemic has was pu- has pushed us in other directions. So I think I think the BRI and that's why I mentioned the AIIB earlier and other organisations, putting investments into these types of relationship building is is important, um, but also across different regions and uh, in ways that don't reproduce those geopolitical dimensions that are shaping the world today and mm-hmm. so hopefully uh, not so much in the future.
0: Many wonder these days, what really are the factors driving politics that we are seeing today? Why people are getting ever more disillusioned by politics, even though extremely impacted by politics?
1: That's a good question. I think I think the simplest way to answer that is, in I guess, in two dimensions. One is around, obviously, uh, the quest for power. Um, and you can understand that in very broad or narrow terms. The second is we separate politics and economics too easily, and I think what we're seeing today is is the the issues, the challenges that many countries are facing around the economic costs of aging populations, infrastructure challenges, healthcare, and all of that. And and countries, including the U.S., China, and others, have have got very significant challenges around these and so, so the so, I think the politics is reflecting that as much as anything. So we've got these geoeconomic challenges as well, and rising inflation, food costs, food security, water security, all of this. So the scarcity of these resources is also shaping the landscape of of international affairs and and creating this geopolitical atmosphere as well. And I think obviously, other uh, dimensions such as digital competition, digital power, also then translate into military power and these types of, uh, aspects and the and the massive investments that countries are putting into this at a time where we also need transboundary solutions to the challenges of humanity today
0: and that's all the time we have for today if you'd like to know more search world inside or check out our YouTube channel I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my teams in Chengdu and in Beijing thanks for being with us bye for now